Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something, seeking community and resources to support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back or welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Simsek and Krista Williams. We're best friends and business partners and we started this pod seven years ago. We just celebrated seven freaking years, a full cycle, baby. I was a thinking about that. full karmic cycle. Full karmic <laughs> cycle. We have all new taste buds. We have all new cells. We are completely new. And I can feel the new cycle. It feels... I actually think it's it's true. Like we look different. Oh my God, dude. I <laughs> This is actually what I'm going to bring to therapy on Saturday. I was like, I'm going to bring to therapy the shame I feel looking at older pictures of myself. It's not like I'm like, I don't, yeah, I'm not like wallowing. I don't have a voodoo doll of my previous self. But I was just like, dang, I don't really, <laughs> I don't know all the phases of the eyelashes and like all the things and just like, yeah, man, I just, and Mm -hmm. not really feeling good in my body or how I looked. And I was just like, oh man, I just, you don't want to be looking back at your previous self and not loving them, but there is a journey with that. Oh yeah. I think when you look back at old photos, it's like, you're looking at more than just what you look like. You're actually feeling how you felt. You're feeling whether it's the shame or you feel bad for her where you're like, oh, you felt like you needed to do this in order to be like loved or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel that. I just can't believe sometimes that like, because I remember like feeling so hot at times that I look back and I'm like, I looked like a fucking fembot in the weirdest way. That's my whole thing. I think that's, it's not even like, yes, I can feel into how I was feeling, but I think more mine is like, I thought I looked good. And no, that no. embarrassment where you're like, yo, I thought I was serving in this moment or I thought I was this. And it's like, yo, yo, but maybe who knows? Maybe you weren't. But then this is my whole thing is like, I think I'm serving more now, but then a week, if you see even a photo two weeks ago, I'm like, oh, I'm hotter today. Like every time I'm like in mm-hmm. the future, delusionally hotter now, even though mm-hmm. like photos show that's not even true. Completely. Completely. Yeah. And with like being pregnant, it's such a fucking vibe where you're like, will I ever feel sexy again? Like I feel sexy in certain ways, right? In all the ways they tell you to feel sexy when you're pregnant or whatever. But it's like, it's different. There's a fear of like, oh, yeah. shall I ever be as hot as I was? Mm-hmm. I mean, we are unsure, but my therapist, and I think I talked about this, so I won't go into it too much, but was like, yeah, you're never going to be the same. And that is by design. And there's, I think the ability to kind of let go of that at every stage, pregnancy or not, like every stage of just letting it go. Letting it evolve, allowing yourself to be rebirthed into something new and finding what you love about that and can adorn 
about that of your look, if that's what we're talking about. So, yeah. And I think too, it's like in pregnancy, there's just so many messages that you guys get. It's like, feel sexy. Don't feel sexy. Like you should feel like this. It's just so confusing, but I'm so grateful that I grew up just not cute at all. So that like, I always just think I can lean back on my personality eventually. I'm like, so I never am like a person that's like (laughs) had to feel like I was always, because I was not at all cute until maybe a time when I was acceptable. But it's like, yeah, I just, that would be kind of hard too, to always feel like you were like known for certain things. And then, you know, if things change, if things happen, it's like even harder because you're like, wait, this is like a huge mm-hmm. aspect of my personality and identity. And I know for you, your body, so you have such a great bod has always been such an aspect. So that would be super mm-hmm. challenging to be like, oh my gosh, wait. Yeah. It's very weird, but it's also, it's exactly what I needed. It's not like I was walking around like fucking half naked and being like, look at my body. But I definitely had an appreciation for and just like confidence in my body. And so it'll be so interesting to see just in my experience postpartum of like, okay, we'll see what we're working with here. Mm-hmm. Let's see where yeah. we're at. Let's see where we're at. And maybe you won't even be able to pay attention to it. You know, maybe it's going to be. Honestly. It was interesting when I was with my dad recently who has Parkinson's and he's not doing so well. There was like a period in time where I had to take care of him from like 24-7 in the middle of the night, help him get back to bed or just help him walk and feed him and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking about, I'm like, oh, this is also an initiation for motherhood because he's at that state. Here he was, you know, it ebbs and flows. He could be fine at this point, but it's like, you, it was like the 24 seven where I I felt like I was like, oh my God, I need to find a time to work out. I need to find a time to like go on a call. I remember in the evening one time I went on a walk and when I came back, he had gotten stuck. And I was like, like, I thought I could get out and take a walk and I couldn't, he was like stuck for 30 minutes. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a small taste of motherhood. Just always feeling like Mm. you have to be on for someone and that you have to And you really do lose your ability to do so many things for yourself, you know, to take care of yourself in such a way. So yeah, it was an initiation for like a tiny one, you know, it's going to be so much Mm -hmm. different, but just feeling into that like motherhood vibe. Oh yeah. I feel like it will be so similar. There's just this other being that really relies on you (laughs) for so many, for everything. Yeah. That's very real. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the ability to kind of eventually resource yourself in such a way that you can have those moments, have those breaks. And even if it's not a long time, even if it's just a shower, it's like those things become really special. Whereas before you might've taken them for granted. So. Yes. I was thinking about that too. When I got back, I was walking with a friend. I'm like, my life is just ridiculous. It's like, I woke up, had a healing session went to therapy, went to the beach, went on a walk with my friend. I'm like, this is just getting to be too much. We need to do something different because it's just too much self-care, too much self-care. I needed that after spending all that time caretaking. But this conversation with Sean Stevenson today, I was really grateful to have. It's his second time on the show. He's been on before. We talked about the current status of health in America. I think that was in 2021 that the episode came out. It was really, really powerful. Highly suggest you listen to it. You can just search Sean with a W, almost 30, and find that. But really talking about the family structure and talking about how to eat with your family, 
in his book, Eat Smarter, the family cookbook, there's a lot of recipes and support for transforming the connection of health, fitness, and your actual family unit. And being with my father who eats very poorly and other parts of my family that have disordered eating or restrictive eating or things like that. It's just, there is so much that is ingrained in us and that is taught to us through our family. And for the most part through osmosis, you know, when we're very young and when we're growing up. And so a lot of us are now working with and reprogramming and learning how to live our lives in a great connection to food outside of what our families have told us, outside of what culture has told us. And I feel like this conversation is so necessary because when we think about all the ways in which so many women are disordered with their eating or have restrictive eating or just have a poor relationship with their body, we have to always go back to where that came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking back to just like family dinners or if maybe you didn't eat with your family every night, maybe it was kind of disjointed and people did their own thing or maybe it was dictated by someone's particular eating pattern or way of eating and just how impressionable we are, especially not only as youngsters, but I even remember just like as a teenager, like picking up things that, yeah, were so disturbing and no one was batting an eye. I'm like, like barely bringing nutrients for lunch. Oh yeah. And Mm -hmm. wondering why I'm like unable to function in class and do well in school because I'm literally eating like leaves. It's very weird. But why was I doing that? I think it was almost like this anticipatory thing that I was doing that I'm like, well, when you get older, you need to watch what you eat. Because I wasn't like, I was still a string bean, but I'm already kind of focusing on how to restrict and how to control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think mine was so much like I wasn't being nourished at all. So I was searching for nourishment, but the things that I was providing myself were not nourishing. It was cereals, it was breads, it was carbs, it was you know, Otis Spunkmeyer cookies, it was chocolate milk, it just had not a lot of protein, not a lot of healthy fats, not a lot of micronutrients, not a lot of variety in what I was eating. And it was a part of the culture too. There was like a a definite success for a lot of the marketing and branding of the 90s in the foods that we ate, whether it was like Doritos, Taco Bell, Cheetos, like there was so much color. There was such great characters. There was such a coolness about eating junk food that so many of us just ate gushers. We ate fruit roll-ups. We ate all these things that actually were not food because it was marketed to us and our parents as like something that like was cool or something that was like what normal kids eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember that so clearly, like the cool kids had the junk food. And then someone like me, like my mom would at points like pack me kind of healthy lunches, just balanced lunches, a sandwich and like an apple and whatever. And I remember that feeling of like embarrassment about my lunch because it wasn't that cool and wanting to trade. It's just such a weird thing. And that's all marketing. Yeah. It's all the marketing that makes people think it's cool. And I remember that as well because my mom would pack Money for chocolate milk, 35 cents. Our chocolate milk was 35 cents. Thank you, government subsidies. And then a turkey sandwich and then an apple and then like a Gushers or something. Still not a lot, to be honest, like probably not enough calories. Um, But I remember feeling like it was like a punishment. I'm like, oh, this is like lame. I'm punished because I don't have a cool lunch. I don't have a lunchable pizza. 
you know what I mean? That like is honestly mm-hmm. space food. So there's like a lot of unraveling that a lot of us have to do. And it's interesting because I think the younger generations are so much more savvy and aware of healthy food, of nutrition, of things that are really supportive of them. And then that goes hand in hand with like diet culture too. So it's like, where is the fine line of the obsession with being healthy and the obsession with what you're eating? And where is that like healthy moment where you're educated, you understand, you know what is nourishing for you. But I have a lot of hope for the younger generation. And I actually feel kind of, I don't feel jealous, but I just feel like, wow, how different my life would be if I grew up with sort of the messages that they grew up with. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine our kids. Like, what? Maybe there will be a whole host of <laughs> yeah. different issues. Who we'll knows? Be, they'll be growing up on Mars. So who knows? Yeah. We don't even really know what they're going to be doing. But Sean Stevenson is um, an author of Eat Smarter. He's the author of Sleep Smarter. He also has the Model Health Show, which is a really popular health and wellness podcast. He studied at University of Missouri in business, biology, and nutritional science. And he's been written up in a bunch of different places, but his work is really powerful. I love how researched it is. I love how clear it is. I loved how he showed up in the past couple of years, just being really truthful and honest and really questioning a lot of narratives and really speaking his mind in the health space. Because I feel Mm -hmm. like for so many health practitioners and health leaders and health and wellness spokespeople or personalities or educators, it can be really challenging to um, stand up for what you believe in. So I always really appreciate his ability to use science and research to convey his truth. Yes. Yes. We love you, Sean. You can learn more and connect with Sean and get his books and listen to the pod at themodelhealthshow.com. Thank you so much for listening to Almost 30. If this episode was one you loved, please pass it on to a friend. This is a great way to just start conversations in your relationships. I've done that many a times when I've wanted to talk about certain things. I've just sent a podcast episode to begin the convo. So that would mean the world to us. Be sure you're subscribed to the show, both Almost 30 and Morning Microdose, our clips show. So this is 10 minutes or less from the Almost 30 archives, but be sure you're subscribed. We release new episodes of Almost 30 every week and Morning Microdose five days a week. And if you want to learn more about what we have going on, including our membership, which is just such a special place, we've been getting so many messages and emails about people's experience in the membership as of late, just feeling like this was exactly what they needed in order to actually make a change and make progress on their path. And I think a big part of that is the community aspect and their ability to just come and be themselves and connect with one another and feel less alone. So check out the membership at almost30.com slash membership. We love you guys. We're so grateful and we'll see you soon. Bye. Okay. This app has been with me through seasons of wanting to prevent pregnancy and also get pregnant. The app is Natural Cycles. It is a leading women's health company that they created the world's first FDA cleared birth control app. So the app's algorithm uses hormone driven changes in body temperature to let users know when they're fertile and not fertile. It is so easy y'all. Every single morning I wake up, I have the uh, thermometer on my bedside table and then I take my temperature. I input the temperature into the app and boom, there you go. Um, It is 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use. It's pretty incredible. Um, I know a lot of people are just thinking about their birth control. Uh, A lot of people are going off hormonal birth control. This is an incredible 
incredible, incredible option for you. I've been using it for a couple years now. Um, and again, it is so easy. So the algorithm uses the body temperature to determine where a user is at in their cycle. The more they measure, the more data it will have. Um, and if you have an aura ring, by the way, it syncs with your aura ring and it'll take your temperature automatically. Pretty cool. You can trust natural cycles for the past 10 years. They have been setting the precedent for non-hormonal and non-invasive birth control without sacrificing effectiveness. They were the first to introduce a birth control app, the first to receive FDA clearance as a birth control app, and the first birth control app to integrate with that wearable device, the Aura Ring. They're the best. I'm excited for you all. Listen, as our listener, you are going to get a discount plus a free thermometer baby. Use code almost 30 at naturalcycles.com to get 15% off an annual subscription plus a free thermometer. That's naturalcycles.com. You're going to use the code almost 30 to get 15% off an annual membership and a free thermometer. I am juggling quite a bit lately. I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, if you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. <laughs> Shervin has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, uh, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, so let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, so I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. Um, it's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time. Right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide. Sean, welcome back. Glad to have you. I think last time you were here, it was like mid-2020, and I think the conversation that we had was definitely a little bit different. We were talking about 
sort of the status of what was going on in the world today health-wise. And I'm really excited because I feel like this conversation's so much more wholesome, so much more positive. And I feel like it's going to be perfect for a lot of our community because a lot of them are women that either are starting families, want to be starting families soon, or are really mindful about how they're creating a different type of family environment. So it's going to be perfect. But I would love to start just because you're like my health guru and you know all the stats and facts and figures. What has sort of happened to our health since the pandemic? Yeah. So of course, we knew there was going to be some long tail effects. Yeah. Our health was already not going in a good direction as a nation. And prior to the pandemic, we were somewhere in the ballpark. And I'm just going to rattle out a couple of stats. I love them. Number one, about 130 million Americans, 128 million precisely, were diabetic or pre-diabetic prior to the pandemic. We had about 42% of our population being clinically obese based on BMI, which is not a perfect right. metric, but you know, just based on that. And we also had about 60% of our citizens having some degree of heart disease and also happening in younger and younger people. And in addition to that, somewhere around 100 million Americans being regularly sleep deprived, mm-hmm. epidemics of mental health issues, the list goes on and on. And then that happened. All right. And it kind of really concentrated and shifted our behavior in such an intense way. And what we saw was, and this is based on really sound data now, significant increased consumption of ultra processed foods, significantly decreased physical activity for the majority of folks. And some of the early data that we got, let me just share this first, was from children. And this was a study conducted by the CDC. And they looked at about a year time span for U.S. children during the shutdowns. And they found that kids who were moderately obese, their annual rate of weight gain doubled. So if they were expected to gain five pounds, they gained 10. Even children who are of normal weight, their annual rate of weight gain went up almost three pounds. So kids started gaining weight faster. And the thing is just like, well, we can be like, we'll clean it up afterwards. We were just trying to be safe. But there's this thing called recidivism. And so when something happens for our bodies as we, you know, and a lot of people experience this and know about this, when you gain weight as a child, it's exceedingly more difficult to get it off once you kind of have that ground laid, let alone with when this happens as an adult. You know, it just seems to get more difficult as time goes on. And so we're setting basically a different thermostat. We're putting that thermostat at a different setting for our children. So where are we at today? All right. So the CDC's latest numbers, they published this at the end of 2022. So they've established that we made this jump now in chronic diseases. They determined that 60% of Americans now have at least one chronic disease. All right, so it went from five to six. So half of our population to now the majority. Wow. And 40% of our citizens now have two or more. All right, now this is data straight from the CDC that everybody was supposedly tuned into during all this stuff. But they're saying like, hey, we're the most chronically diseased society in the history of, of humanity, in documented human history. Something is severely wrong. And these are just some of the big picture things that we can delve into and like look at the parts. But here's the good news. Even with all of this and all of the turbulence, when things are shaky, it's really good opportunity to change things. But when a system is going in a certain direction where chronic disease was getting normalized. It just took a little bit of a, a jump. It got a, a, a leap pad effect. And we have an opportunity right now 
to target what the root cause is. Why progressively, the last few decades have we been getting sicker and sicker? Last little thing I'll share. This is again, this was published prior to the pandemic. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is one of the top journals in the world. And the title of the study was 200 Years of Diabetes. All right, and so they, they looked at 200 years of diabetes in, in our country. And the numbers were pretty consistent up until about 50 years ago. And over the last 50 years, the rates of type 2 diabetes in America quadrupled. It just went from this kind of consistent thing to boom, it jumped up. And the question is why? And with that, for years I've been trying to target behavior change. But the truth is it's very difficult to make a behavior change in a culture that is inundating you with behaviors that harm you. It's very difficult at working as a clinician and I'm working with a mother or I'm working with a father or some kids or whatever, whoever the case is, it's usually the biggest thing that they would share with me is like, why can't you put this into place for yourself? What's the biggest struggle for you? It's the other people around them. That's where they point the finger. And usually people they love, but they blame them for making it more difficult. And not to say that that's not the case, but what I eventually started to do prior to like really focusing on writing books and teaching and all that stuff, I started to work with families. And I was coming into this very much aware now of human psychology and motivation. And so finding, and all it is is just you talk to people. When I say talk, I really mean listen. Yeah. Ask questions and they will tell you what the cause and cure is. For them personally, they will tell you what motivates them, what will, what will drive them to do a certain thing. So me talking, just spending time with maybe it's like a, their seven-year-old son, just finding out what he likes, what he's into. Maybe it's gaming, maybe it's some kind of sport, but I'll use that as leverage to tie in like, oh, you know what? This particular food or these particular nutrients are really great for improving your cognitive function so that you're, you know, I'll, I'll grab some studies on hand-eye coordination for their gaming. Right. And so they make sure. And then the parent reports back to me a month later that, oh my goodness, I don't know how you got him to do this, whatever, superfood smoothie in the morning, but he does that every day now. Right. So, and here's the coolest part about all this is that you don't need an expert like me to tell you exactly what to do. We know our loved ones better than anybody, but because of the busyness of life and all the stuff that we have weighing on us, a lot of times we just don't feel like dealing with it. Mm -hmm. I've been married for 16 years. We've been together almost 20 years, like we're 19 years in. I know that a lot of the frustration comes from people not doing what you want them to do. If we just get to the bare bones, mm -hmm. we want people, just act right. Mm -hmm. Don't kill my vibe. Mm -hmm. We're good. All right. Just act right. But inevitably, people are going to be people. People, people be people it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to do things that disrupt whatever you believe life should be like. And instead of us fighting each other, if we are able to build up our own reserves to care for ourselves, which is such a huge challenge, especially for women. And I know it's possible because I've seen it. But when that energy, when that cup gets filled and to be able to give from your overflow, as my friend Lisa Nichols says, the game has changed. And so now we have more patience. Now we have more empathy. Now we can monitor our children and see what's motivating them and what's demotivating them. Because a lot of times, myself included, when I'm done, when I'm tired, and I just want you to eat your food, just eat. Mm -hmm. 
versus me bringing you into this, you know, asking, hey, what do you want to eat for dinner? Do you want this or this? Like, what do you want for the side? Or like, do you guys want a dessert? Do you want this or this? Yeah. Right. So we're going to have family dinner on Tuesday or Wednesday this week. Right. I'm inviting them in. And now I have more of the patience and bandwidth to see what motivates them, to see how to get through to them, basically. And again, now we've got all the science to really walk people through how to do this and ultimately lead to better health outcomes for our families. Yeah, it's like engaging that prefrontal cortex for like a conscious engagement with your family and children on things. And that's what can be so hard. I don't have children, but I am getting closer to people in my life that have kids. And I just think about single moms and like being a single mom and having no more capacity to really engage in those conversations and how challenging it could be. But there's something I want to go back to that you spoke to at the beginning of the conversation, and it was around obesity. And I think within our culture, there's a conversation around obesity where there's like a belief where there's a thought that like fat could also be healthy. And mm -hmm. so I think while obesity is rising in America, there's also kind of body positivity and there's people that are really celebrating different types of bodies. What are your thoughts on that? I know we can't speak for all of it, but like, can fat be healthy? Oh, this is such a good question. And, and number one, one of the most beautiful things about humanity is our diversity. There isn't one cookie cutter way that we come and that's to be celebrated, absolutely. And you know, for myself personally, I grew up in an environment where the majority of my family members were obese. I was, quote, the skinny kid in the family. And I had a different father. And by the way, if you see my birth certificate at my house right now, my mother had me when she was you know, barely 18 and there's no father on the birth certificate. Wow. And so my skinny aspect probably comes from there, but eventually, and this isn't, again, this can be isolated or blamed on yeah. genes. One of the primary genes targeted is FTO gene, but many of the people who carry this so-called fat gene, the one of them, many of them don't ever experience being overweight or obese. So it's not the gene itself, it's the conditions or the epigenetic influences. So for me, eventually that data kicked on. And this was when I was really struggling with my health. And not only was I diagnosed with a so-called incurable condition when I was just a kid, I was 20 years old with advanced arthritis in my spine, I broke my hip at track practice. But for something like that to happen, it's years in the making. That was more of my gen genetic predisposition towards a problem when I'm not addressing the epigenetic influences. But with that being said, once the dominoes started, then the weight gain came and I started basically going 100 for 100 in our family of obesity. And so I, I grew up with those as my conditions. And what I can tell you is this, number one, we absolutely cannot hate ourselves into wellness. And self-love and acknowledging our diversity, even if we are carrying more body fat than what is deemed to be beautiful by society, which that's even changed, thankfully, that's something to celebrate. And within that, one of the most severe outcomes, for example, is seven times higher incidence of developing endometrial cancer, which is what happened to my mother who was obese. Seven times higher risk. That was like the number one cancer that you can likely get as a woman when you venture into obesity, and that's what happened. Not to mention diabetes, not to mention my brother and sister and I growing up with chronic asthma and allergies and all these different things. And... 
seeing my other family members, heart disease, mental health issues, the list goes on and on. We're dramatically increasing our risk of a whole plethora of chronic illnesses. So we want to approach this from a place of celebration of our diversity, but we also need to take care of our health. We know when we get into a place when we're not well. But sometimes, let me just, let me say that. Sometimes we might ignore it, right? And so what's going on behind the scenes is the question. Well, some of the data that I shared in one of my earlier books was looking at the contents of a fat cell itself. And when our fat cells, which our fat cells are, uh, even that, again, they're amazing. They're intelligent. And they were evolved to help us to survive. And they're very, very good at storing energy for when we need it. Thing today is that we hardly ever need it. We don't have famines for most of us. And even our homeless population, like we, there's a large homeless population here in Los Angeles. Their numbers are almost on par with our society-wide obesity rates. It's about a 38% obesity rate in a homeless population. So we're at a place where we're ironically more people are dying from excess than dying from lack. Mm. And so as these fat cells are getting filled with more and more contents, what happens is because we didn't evolve with the capacity to carry that much energy for that long, not to mention that much energy in the cell itself, it starts sending out a distress signal for our immune system, right? It's basically we're generating this call for inflammation. Your immune system is the primary conductor of inflammation because essentially it's like you're infected, like your cells are battling, trying to battle an infection. And because it, it's experiencing these kind of abnormal conditions, and so our body hasn't evolved yet, but evolution takes time. We possibly can get there. But right now, the human body essentially starts attacking itself. And this is another reason we see this parallel with all this increase of autoimmune conditions, right? Why would our body try to hurt itself? And why have these rates exploded? There are many different ingredients, but we see a significant increase in autoimmune conditions when we venture into obesity. And I just mentioned one cancer. We're seeing double risk of breast cancer, double risk of testicular cancer. The list goes on and on because your immune system is getting overburdened. And I'm just mentioning one kind of global, yeah. like big picture aspect of yeah. this. And so that's the part that we need to take stock of because we could absolutely carry more weight, you know, there's oh, I nothing, can't wait. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> I can't wait. There's what nothing are you wrong say? with the thickness. I was going right? to say, I was like, you know you want to say thick. <laughs> Thicker than a snicker. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, are we getting to a place yeah. where we are degrading our lifestyle and our functionality and eventually seeing ourselves in a place where we can avoid suffering, mm -hmm. right? That's really what it's all about, is being able to be healthy at any weight, right? To truly be healthy at any weight, not just saying the thing because it sounds good because there is a point where we get significantly diminishing returns and we're putting our, ourselves in a, a bullet train towards dysfunction. Yeah. And something you said in the homeless population statistics, so interesting because it's almost like you mentioned we have an excess of food and we do, but it's like an excess of any nutritional value or nourishment food. It's like we have an excess of fake food. We have an excess of toxicity. So what can you talk a little bit about that correlation? Because people are like, we all have food, but we're all not actually nourished. Yeah. I love that you brought this up. So we are experiencing a situation where we're storing a lot of 
very kind of isolated form of energy, but we're also starving. Yes. We're starving cellularly. Spiritually. And that that part. Spiritually, that's my thing. (laughs) That part. And this is what's driving us to keep consuming more. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most fascinating things that I was studying for quite some time after college was looking at it's a part of the brain. It's called the appetite regulating network mm. or ARN mm-hmm. and it's in the hypothalamus. Mm-hmm. So the HPA axis, a lot of people have heard of this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, but along that is your thyroid. Along that is your ovaries or your testes. There's a lot of data. It's like an information superhighway of the body and the tip of the spear is the hypothalamus. It's really the master gland in this situation. And that, if you're looking for where is your metabolic thermostat at how much quote, fat you're burning, what is your metabolic rate? You're going to find that thermostat in the hypothalamus. That's also where the appetite regulating network is. And so one of the primary drivers of dysfunction with the appetite regulating network is based on the way that we evolved when our ancestors, and even today, it's still happening, but we didn't have this curveball I'll talk about in a minute, but our ancestors would eat a food, we'll just say a cherry. All right, they ate some wild cherries. And when they eat that food, their cells are essentially taking notes that I just ate this cherry, I got this vitamin C, I got a little bit of these particular amino acids, I got melatonin. This is an interesting thing. This is one of the main food sources of melatonin in nature, right? So your cells are taking notes on what nutrients it's getting from that food and from that flavor. It's something called post-ingestive feedback. All right, it's this really phenomenal built-in intelligence that all of us have and all all creatures. If you've ever thought about why do certain animals eat certain things? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll eat different things. That post-ingestive feedback, their biology is telling them to go eat that food because I'm running low on whatever it is, all right? Now, with that being said, if we became deficient in vitamin C, we would get a craving for, generally vitamin C is coming along with a lot of different things that have a little sweetness to it, right? So fruits, for example, would be a great source to, load up on some vitamin C. There's other species of animals that they make vitamin C in their bodies. We don't because it's so abundant in how we evolved that we can always get access to some. Now, here's the problem. Food manufacturers have manipulated this pathway and we can now take that cherry flavor that once indicated the nutrient profile that I just mentioned, plus a lot more. Now we can, there's a One of the inventions was called a a gas chromatograph because flavor is just chemistry. All of life is just chemistry. We can break this stuff down. And so there's a formula for that cherry flavor that you experience. And now we can take that flavor and we can put it in other things. So now we put cherry flavored candy, cherry flavored soda, cherry flavored ice cream, no cherries necessary. And now it's starting to muddy up those metabolic waters of like your intelligence of my cravings to eat certain things. Now it's really getting all screwed up. And so we can start to develop these cravings for things that are very abnormal. And if we don't get the things that we expect, your body will keep making you crave foods to try to get those nutrients in because that's how we evolved with getting the nutrients we need is that our body would drive us through craving. And again, craving is given a bad name today. And what it really is, this can be a subtle internal whisper, or it can be like a really deep longing for something. And we can crave all kinds of things, food, drugs, connection, but it's being able to have an open line for those cravings, 
right? Because there's also this new advent of intuitive eating, right? And listening to your body, we really do want to get to that place because your body knows better than any scientist could ever tell you. But at the same time, our intuition might not be telling you to eat Funyuns. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And what my mission is with this new book is helping people to understand that cravings are cultural. You can't crave what you haven't been exposed to. Yeah. All right. So somebody who's working next to a rice paddy in Thailand, that's where their house is. They're probably not finished with their work day. You know what? I really got a craving for a Whopper. They don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. We crave what we've been exposed to. Whereas in our culture, we're inundated and exposed to the majority of our diet today is now ultra processed food. And so this is the first book that's sharing this new published data. And I'm very proud of that. But also I want this to be a sobering call to action. A lot of people have heard this stat recently looking at U.S. adults. And this was published in the BMJ. This is like, again, top five medical journals, top, top, top. And they established that 60% of the average adult's diet in America is made of ultra processed foods now, all right, fake foods. And humans have been processing foods forever, by the way. So again, taking that cherry and maybe crushing it or cooking it in some kind of a recipe, even grains, grains right? Processed, yeah. But there's a minimally processed and then there's ultra processing. Yeah. So minimal process is cooking something or taking olives and pressing the oil out. Ultra processing is taking those grains, that field of wheat, and somehow it becomes a bowl of fruity pebbles. That's ultra processed food or pop tarts. Most of the food on our superstore, our supermarket store shelves are ultra processed food and made from mainly the same stuff. Wheat, corn, different sources of sugar, soy, but it looks like all this stuff because it's ultra processed and adding all these you know, preservatives, additives, food Colors. dyes, chemicals. I shared in the book as well, this really it's a crazy, crazy study. I'm from St. Louis. So Monsanto is like this, one of their home bases. Yeah. All right. But also I wanted to work there, you know, because yeah. they would come to the food. We had I mean, the, I was like, I want to work at PNG in Cincinnati. The job fairs mm -hmm. at the school. That was like a great job to get. Boeing was there as well, yeah. you know. But I had no idea what they're up to, you know. But <laughs> yes. A lot of folks recently, a lot of science has been Glyphosate. out about glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And what's the biggest problem with this that we have sound data on? Well, the WHO, and I like to go to like the bigger entities, even though I know the smaller, like likely more hard hitting, but the WHO determined that glyphosate is a class 2A carcinogen. That means it probably causes cancer, right? And- in the book, I shared an analysis by the Environmental Working Group looking at grain products on U.S. store shelves. They found that up to 90% of U.S. grain products are contaminated with glyphosate. Wow. Now. Wow. Right now. And so- That's Roundup being sprayed in the crops, correct? Yeah, it's a whole and story behind into... that, you know, but it's just the, it's, it's a huge- Disruptor of our of our metabolic mm -hmm, health, mm -hmm. not to mention the health of our immune system, and we also have immunometabolism. Yeah. So the metabolism of our, of our immune and the cells. environment, the grass, the animals, like everything. Yeah. Is it a fertilizer or is it for is it anti pesticides? Glyphosate. I actually don't know. It it has many roles. Okay. So this is a thing. Basically, we have this phenomenon today where yeah. we've developed, or not we, but yeah. these these food manufacturers, yes. genetically modified dwarf wheat. 
So it's like really this kind of systematic strain, like where it can only grow in certain conditions. All right. And so making sure that basically these things can't grow in nature by themselves. Wow. And so making it so that you also have to get their seeds, like they kind of weeded out a lot of other manufacturers, people, farmers. Yes, I've heard that. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this contamination of the soil, you know, so we've got something that works as a pesticide and a fertilizer, kind of fungicide, insecticide, but also it has these other effects as well. It really boils down to creating a system where you dominate the thing, where you create a monopoly. Yeah. And so the point that I was going to make was that wheat strain, you have to get their fertilizer. You have to get their glyphosate yes. in order to grow it. So it just feeds right into yep. each other. It's like a patent on the seed and yep. then a patent on the specific fertilizer for that specific seed. Yeah, that that whole, end, I mean, that's a whole moment conversation. Yeah, it's just sometimes when you get into these, it's just hard is not the word that I want to use, but it's the only word that I can say. It's like, because then we get to, okay, so now we're talking about our food system. We're talking about the glyphosate with the monopoly at Monsanto. Okay, we're talking about kids and them having government subsidiaries of dairy farmers and feeding them milks and cheeses in schools. And like, you know, you get to this point where you see kind of this web of systems in place that create an environment that makes it hard to be healthy and hard to be well. Just gets a little heartbreaking. Okay, small daily actions. Ah, they just make a big difference. And I just cannot emphasize this enough. It creates this cascade effect and honestly a snowball effect. <laughs> so one begets the next really great positive small action, but it almost has like a bigger impact as the day, as the week goes on. Um, and I'm just someone who very much believes in this, whether you're like smiling at a stranger or maybe you wake up a little bit earlier to practice your meditation or maybe read part of the book that you're loving, uh, or maybe you integrate a healthy habit, like taking a probiotic, which is something that I've been doing for a few years now. I've been taking seeds DSO one daily symbiotic and I love it. And I've just noticed that this is the catalyst at the beginning of the day for a ton of healthy choices that I make. Um, and I've noticed a difference when I don't take it. Um, I forgot on vacation a few months ago and I noticed a difference. I was bloated. I wasn't as regular. I started to get a little breakout on my chin. Things were just going haywire. Um, so I'm just so thankful for seed. If you are someone who wants to support your gut or your skin digestion, your gut barrier integrity, oh, I recommend seed. Their DSO-1 daily symbiotic is incredible. What is different about Seed? So Seed's patented capsule and capsule design is so unique. It basically means that the fragile bacteria within the capsule can survive the journey. So from like shipping to your door to when you put it in your body all the way through your GI tract, um, all without synthetic or chemical coatings. Um, and this was developed in collaboration with Seed Scientific Board and based on their foundational work in probiotics and the microbiome. They're the best in the space. Um, 
So I just, I trust them and I've experienced incredible results. So trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash almost and use the code 25almost to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash almost. The code is 25almost. Oh, y'all, I am wearing my shorts and my skirts and my dresses and my legs are out and I'm just so excited about it because I have my Osea Andaria Algae Body Oil and it is keeping me glowing. <laughs> it's making my legs and my arms look just so fresh, so alive, to be honest, and so young. Um, I love this product. It is from Osea Malibu. They just know what they're doing over there. They've been doing it for over 28 years. Skincare is their jam. It's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and is clinically proven, okay? It's infused with seaweed, which is the star of the show here, and I just love the products. They really work. So the body oil is so rich, but it's never greasy, Okay, and it's clinically proven to improve skin elasticity immediately. It's visibly firming your skin and makes the skin feel more sculpted and toned, which we love. It's so amazing. Overnight, you can do this during the day or overnight. I do it overnight, but I love the Andaria Algae Body Butter because I would just wake up so insanely moisturized. It's indulgent and it's really great for crepey skin. I'll put it on my knees and my elbows and anywhere that's like kind of dry. It's clinically proven to hydrate for 72 hours. It just transforms the skin. You're going to be obsessed. And then finally, the anti aging body balm. Yeah. I mean, hello, silky lotion serum. It just melts into my skin. I feel like it lifts and tightens and tones all over. I'm obsessed. Perfect for summer, baby. So glow from the inside out with clean vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code A30POD at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order. They're so good about that. And free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code A30POD, A30POD for 10% off. What is the current trajectory of a child? Looking at yours or the normal child, what is the current trajectory that they're fed from a health perspective, from like even being a baby, the foods that they're being fed or like what they're being exposed to? It's a great question. So this parlays into where we are with our kids right now. Yes. And then I'll go back to the beginning. Yeah. So as mentioned, again, I'm proud that this is the first book to share this, yes. but the Journal of the American Medical Association published this huge meta-analysis looking at 20 years, essentially, of U.S. food consumption by our children. So this was kids between the age of 2 to 19, so children and adolescents. And the researchers found that in 1999, the average U.S. child's diet was made of 61% ultra-processed foods already outmatching adults, which is kind of obvious because that's how I grew up as a kid, Yeah, same. right? But by 2018, now the average U.S. child's diet is almost 70% ultra-processed foods. It's only about 30%, quote, real food is making up our children's diet today. And something is severely wrong. And again, mm -hmm. if you look at the health outcomes, skyrocketing rates of obesity in our children, higher rates of what used to be called adult onset diabetes, but the name was changed because more and more kids started getting type 2 diabetes. All manner of mental health conditions. Yeah. 
And the list goes on and on with all these really abnormal things happening with our children. And so obviously the food piece is a huge one. And we were talking before we got started, like when you were a kid for your volleyball games, Mm -hmm. mid-game, Teddy Grahams. Teddy Grahams, baby. (laughs) Dude, my favorite. I would just put my paw in a box. The Teddy Grahams are goldfish. Mm -hmm. Like we were like a carb house. Mm -hmm. My mom was like a low-fat carb house so it was all carbs i mean i was probably so starved for a healthy fat or like a nourishing fat or yeah i just remember feeling so hungry because it was so sugar heavy it was so carb heavy it was so like less is better like eating less is better i think as like a woman just growing up how i grew up it's you know it was never you could have more vegetables, you could have more fruits, you could have more of these amazing things that are going to nourish you. It's like, how can you just reduce all the food that you're eating? So it's different messages, especially culturally where you grow up and the access that you have to food. But yeah, it was, I think about that a lot with my moods, with my brain development, with my sleep and even my performance in sports. Like I wasn't like an all-star, but I'm like, damn, I would have been so much better at sports if I was like actually taking care of my body. Yeah. And this is is very common, Mm -hmm. you know, and also a lot of times it's an effort for parents, especially during that time with the low fat phenomenon, like still wanting to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And like, this is a low fat snack for my kid. And this is all based on food marketing. It's not based on science. And also they're marketing to children, which should be illegal or have severe penalties and or significant rules around it. Mm -hmm. But these cartoon characters, these, you said I put my paw into the Teddy Grahams. You know, these cartoon characters are so seductive for children. I mean, Chester Cheeto, is anyone cooler? I mean, come on now. Chester Cheeto is such a G. The Noid. um, Yo. We had. Even Mountain Dew. I was like, freaking, yeah. (laughs) Sprite, all the athletes. Toucan Sam was like, follow your nose. Yes. Follow your nose. Yes. And so what they did was they had kids analyze how much they liked a cereal. And it was like a five point smiley face scale. And they found that kids, when, and by the way, this was the same cereal given to kids, but one of the cereals, it had a cartoon character on the box and one didn't. I'm scared. When there was a cartoon character on the box, they rated the cereal higher. They liked it more. They, they felt that it tasted better. But all there was a framing that this cartoon character, which is, again, the mind of a child, is like, this is imagination. This is fun, right? And so the credo with these ultra-processed food companies is get them while they're young. Get them while they're young and you can have a lifetime customer, right? And so they're spending so much marketing money on manipulating our children. And we're just oblivious to it because we grew up with it. Going down a cereal aisle. It's insane. It is insanity. It's like walking into a casino. It's like, ding, 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 ding. It's crazy. Yes. But until you are able to step away from the crazy a little bit, you can't really see it. It's just like, what looks good today? And so I'm saying this from the perspective of somebody, I was a serial killer. All right, I love, Box love bed. Apple Jacks, Captain Crunch, Snacks. not even a real captain, mm-hmm. but he's got that. He went, he, I got his certification online, <laughs> but also when I was trying to get healthy in college, trying to turn my health around, rather than eating my quote kid cereal, I was like, let me eat an adult cereal that's high fiber. And so I switched from my Honey Nut Cheerios and whatever else I was eating to Quaker Oatmeal Squares, right? I'm like, oh, this is a nice... There's a Quaker on the box. Mm-hmm. He's older. Know? He's older. It's not a yeah. cartoon character. Yeah. He maybe he's a person. He I don't know. He looks like a president. He looks like <laughs> Ben Franklin wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> but here's the thing: in that 
Environmental Working Group report of the most contaminated foods with glyphosate, Quaker oatmeal square cereal was one of the top, like top five most contaminated with glyphosate. And so it's so crazy. Like we have this culture where we try, we're trying to I do know, the right thing. thing. And this is the thing that we can literally just flip a switch in our mind and start to make healthier decisions is if I was aware that is a ultra processed food, that food is fake. It's so denatured, so far removed from any oats. Are you kidding me? Where are the oats at? You can't tell where this came from. And all of these chemicals that are added to this, this is not real human food. Now, this is not to villainize it either, because if you want to dabble in a bowl of cereal here or there, absolutely, that's your prerogative. But if this makes up the majority of your diet, we're going to have a huge problem because we're changing the ingredients that make us as a species. And this is the health outcome that we're seeing. And so, again, currently, the food piece is a big part with our children. But I, I mentioned I want to go back to the beginning. And this also reminds me with my mother. And this is crazy. So this mm. was published in the FASIP journal. And they were looking at development of children in the womb based on the mother's diet. And this culture of ultra-processed food and excessive consumption of energy in, in those forms. And they found specifically that it created what they dubbed to be lifetime alterations to the appetite regulating network in the brains of the children and significantly increased leptin resistance. So the satiety hormones we produce, the brain not being able to pick up that signal to reduce the appetite. We're changing what's happening to us before we even get here now. And this is just a little bit of the story, but here's also, again, this is, we always need to bring this back to empowerment and this is not a place for us to feel any guilt or to put that on someone else my mother you know this is about what we can do now and i said that the researchers perceive that it's lifetime changes that's not so when we're here we have so much power like literally to change what's happening with our genetic expression and now we have entire fields of nutrigenomics for example looking at how just a, a bite of food changes your genetic expression of like thousands of genes, right? And so we get to start to determine how our genes are getting expressed, what kind of copies are getting printed of us. But that, of course, that takes time, but we start the process immediately when we start to bring in different inputs. But my mission right now is, yes, let's bring in delicious real food to the table, literally, but also understand that there's something above that that's controlling our food choices and there's something above that is more powerful for our health outcomes even than food. Mm, which is? Which is our relationships. Yes. I shared in the book, this It's one of the most robust studies that's ever been done. It's a 148 studies combined meta-analysis. Over 300,000 study participants were analyzed. And this was published by researchers at Brigham Young University. And they found that people who have healthy social relationships had up to a 50% reduction in all-cause mortality. This means that people who had healthy relationships had a 50% reduction in risk of death from everything, up to that amount, all right? Of course, there's a spectrum here, but that's crazy. That doesn't even make sense. And with that, coupled with that, I have a, a colleague who's the director of the longest-running human study, longitudinal study. This means they're following you for years, okay? This is research at Harvard, and he said the torch passed on to him because he wasn't like, he, I think he's maybe 60 now himself, so 
he wasn't like, you know, pre mm-hmm. here and running the study, but it's been passed off. I believe he's the fourth director. When he took on the job, he couldn't believe what the data was showing on the impact of relationships. What they found was that your relationships are the number one determining factor on how long you're going to live. Significantly more telling than your diet, your exercise, your sleep habits, stress management, all those things that definitely matter, our relationships are more impactful. All right? And now, with that being said, the question is why? Your relationships determine all those other things. Your relationships determine, heavily influence your relationship with exercise, what you're eating, the stress you're exposed to and how you manage that stress. That's why it is such a powerful thing for us to focus on. But in our society, we're usually not taught anything about how to cultivate healthy relationships. You might just accidentally have some or accidentally have terrible relationships, just kind of like what you're born into. And so... This is a mission for us to understand how powerful that is. And regardless of where we come from, because again, I don't want this to get into a blame game because this is powerful. This is empowerment for you. And just to share this really quickly, I mentioned my mom a couple of times. My mother, she, man, she went above and beyond to put food on our table. Growing up in the inner city, she worked overnight at a convenience store and one of those nights, she somebody tried to rob the store and she was stabbed eight times. And But my mom is different also. She was able to subdue the guy and the police arrested him. But when she went in, you know, she was getting stitches and all the things. The physician told her that if you weren't overweight, if you didn't, if he called her heavyset, he said, if you weren't a heavyset woman, you would have died. Her mind yeah, I was like, deeply no, programmed. Say no more. This is my safety. Yeah, this is you confirm the safety that I need in this body. Exactly. Wow. Right? And also my mom would sell her blood to get some money, you know, like wow. all kinds of things to put food on the table. A lot of times we get food from this charity in the areas called the Hosea House. Obviously the food stamps, all this stuff. But there's this thing for people that don't know what life is like in this. Like, why don't you just work harder? Yeah. Why don't yeah. you just pull yourself mm-hmm. up by your bootstraps? Literally, she was... Mm-hmm doing that mm-hmm. and the environment is so volatile, yep. you can die, mm-hmm. you know? And so living in those conditions, for me as a kid, it's easy to blame. Like it's easy, like I don't got Christmas presents. Yeah. I don't have the clothes. Yeah, I my birth certificate. My other co- right. And, I, and my stepfather was in the picture. He came into the picture when I was a baby, but we grew up in the inner city during the crack epidemic. And so I lost uncles. I lost people to prison. I had people murdered. I didn't have them murdered, but friends of mine. <laughs> Clip it. You know, friends of mine, yeah. my quote, big brother, you know, somebody just kind of was like a friend of the family who kind of, you know, he just yeah. was always around. He was killed. And also my family being a part of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like literally one of the places that we lived, there was like an alley, like a walkway. It's not really an alley, but a walkway. And the next apartment doors where crack was being cooked and sold. Mm-hmm. Like this is just how my life was. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, you got to be on guard for a drive-by. You got you hear the sirens, all this stuff. But you sort of become immune to it because it's normalized. And so being in this environment with a mom who's, she's tired. She's struggling. She's trying to make ends meet. She's got all of this pressure to keep her kids safe. But also well, how she grew up, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so, again, I can get into this place of like the conditions that she had me in. A lot of bad stuff happened with me. But also, my mom had a very, like I said, she restrained that guy. Like she was very tough and aggressive. So all day, every day of my life, this is a true story. I'm just like, what am I, what is she going to beat me for today? Or like, she's constantly yelling. Like she might give you one opportunity before she's yelling five seconds later. So it's constant aggression. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I could carry that with me and say my mom was this bad person, which I did for a long time. But then I realized my mom gave me so many opportunities as well that I chose to focus on, like trying to get me into good schools. Again, even though we didn't have much, she would try to do that one little extra thing for me. And also within all of this kind of chaos, I still had my mom. I still had a mom. Right. So I chose to really latch my attention onto that and to let go of all the blame and the things that were really hurting me. Now, I'm saying all this to say that we tend to replicate the behaviors that we come from, or sometimes we swing to the total opposite. And so when I had my first child, so my daughter's my oldest and I have my two sons, I knew already that I wasn't going to be like that, that I was going to raise her with love, attention, all the things, because I did get some other examples in my life. Right. Being able to like stay at my friend's house and like just seeing like, oh, you guys are like the Winslows for family matters. Like I didn't know this was a thing. It's just like I'm going to live in this neighborhood when I grow up, you know, kind of thing, which I ended. I unconsciously it was like a day the day after we moved in to the area that I was bust out to an hour each day that I realized like, oh, my God, I said I was going to live here and here I am. So it's just like we're so powerful with our attention. But I'm saying all this to say, absolutely. My daughter was advanced because I spent time with her when she was in kindergarten. I got like these second and third grade workbooks and we would sit at the table, you know, for an hour a day and like, because I thought that that was being a good father. But I'm not talking about my character during it if she's not getting something fast enough and I might be a little bit more irritable. Not a bad guy, totally, but you know what I mean? Just like my patience wasn't there. And as time went on and as I got myself healthier, and my energy changed, all of a sudden my patience started to expand. And I could start to see like, oh my goodness, like I don't wanna be like this with her. I love her so much and my mom loved me so much. It's just she was dealing with the environment that she was in and she was doing the best that she could with what she had, right? And so for me, this is an opportunity to provide this resource with everybody because it starts with us. The culture is the key. I mentioned that cravings are cultural. The bigger culture out here has created all this dysfunction. And I've spent years trying to target that bigger culture. And I've, I've done some cool things. But it's we haven't reached that tipping point yet where health is normalized. The way that we do this, and I'm so grateful that I finally got it, is through targeting the microcultures, the cultures that we can control the controllables. We can create cultures in our household that makes healthy choices easier. Because as soon as this kind of got flipped in my mind, I started to, which my son, we just mentioned my oldest son, he works in fitness now. I never told him to do that. He's just in the environment. And so this doesn't mean that all our kids are just going to do follow in our footsteps kind of thing. But it's just like for him, those fitness exposures, instead of me going off to the gym, which is cool. Like sometimes we need to get away from these little people. Mm-hmm. But what if your kid sees his mother 
she goes off this place called the gym, this magical place. She comes back all sweaty and happier. She's like, where'd you go, mom? You know, is this the gym or is this magic mic? You know, what, like, where are you? What are you doing? And but what if you can give your kid that exposure? And so what I started to do was like at least one day a week, we all go and do something fitness related together. We go to the local school track. Or as soon as my son was old enough, I started taking him to the gym with me every now and then. And he just like, for him, he got bit by that bug, you know, early. And just like, I haven't seen any young person like him. Like he's, and I don't want him to do this actually, but he's getting up at four or five in the morning to make sure if like, if he's got a full plate on his schedule, he'll get up like that and go to the gym so when he's Mark like Wahlberg. 19. Right. Oh, <laughs> he's the, like 430 a.m. club, yeah. yes. you know? You're like, sir. I have dinner at 3.30 p.m. So I could, you know, hey, you know, it's respect. But, you know, the last little piece here is creating these microcultures intentionally where, you know, health is more accessible, where connection is more accessible. The key isn't like getting rid of all the, quote, bad food in your house. The key is connection with each other because the relationship is going to determine the food choices. And so I'll just share this really quickly. One of the most fascinating studies that I came across with this was that I'll blend these two studies together. One was published in Pediatrics and the other was in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. They looked at health outcomes of children based on how often they eat with their parents. And they found that children who ate with their parents just three meals a week had significantly lowered incidence of developing obesity and disordered eating. There's something special that is like the minimum effective dose of just eating together with your family. There's something really special about it. And we can get into the details of how it works. And there's a lot more data and studies. I shared all the, pretty much all the studies we've covered are in the Eat Smarter Family Cookbook. But something really special about getting together with people that you love and eating good food together. Yeah, I just think about the whole thing. It's like we're just so lack of nourishment from a cultural perspective in so many different spaces. It's like actual nutrient nourishment, actual like spiritual nourishment, actual connective nourishment. It's like we are just starving for actual connection. We are starving for like hope. We are starving for true nourishing things. Within the family unit, the emotional component part of it, it's like and the relationship to food. That's what I found in my life is that my relationship with food is so much related to my relationship with my own emotions, my stress levels, how restrictive I am with myself and how healed I've been in my life or how much healing I've done has directly correlated to my relationship with health and food. And like you were talking about earlier, my capacity to hold for other people is so much greater when I am fed well, when I'm emotionally well, when my blood sugar is regulated, when I'm really good. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him, it still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time. But let me just say, this is new. Like, 
this is a new type of audio that um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future, um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. Would you suggest that people focus on their own culture, meaning focusing on their own home, their own community, the place that they can impact instead of, I guess, getting caught in the minutia of like thinking about all the things that are potentially wrong with our system? This is such a good question. All right. So there's so much that we can put our energy into, so much to be upset about, obviously, in this kind of bigger culture scape. But it is just that, which is controlling the controllables, because that's another need that we can meet is certainty. We all have a need for certainty. And a lot of the frustration we get is because all the uncertainty that's out there in the world, especially yes. when it comes to our family, our kids, that kind of stuff. And so what does this really look like? We first need to define what culture is. Let's yeah, do that. Mm -hmm. So culture is defined as the attitudes, values, beliefs, and behaviors of a group of people that are then passed on from one generation to the next. All right. That's the key part. We pass this on. I gave a little bit of an example of like the culture that I was passed and how I start to replay things from that environment until I realized that not only are we a product of our culture, we're creators of our culture. We're not just products of our environment. We're creators of our environment. If you become aware of it, right? We can just replay. We just become a, a printout of certain things or you can decide different. That's what makes us so special as humans. We can do that. But a lot of people have been conditioned to not know how powerful they are to make these changes. And also when we try to make these changes a lot of times because the culture is the way that it is, it can make it very, very difficult for us and seemingly impossible to change. And also subconsciously, we become comfortable in the struggle. We become comfortable because certainty is so important to our, our brains are always looking to automate behavior. 
So when we start to change, we tend to feel turbulence. A lot of times, actually, there's like a, there's a lot of data out there about habit change and things like that. Because initially when you do something, especially if you're inspired, it's just like, yeah, let's go. I'm doing this, mm -hmm. working out. I've gone seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Then on day eight or nine, something happens. You know, like we go from the excitement phase to the struggle phase mm -hmm. because your brain is like, hey. Mm -hmm. mm, that isn't what we do. That's not you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's. Mm -hmm. That's not you. Mm -hmm. We're this. And because literally we're creating new circuitry in the yeah, brain. Neural pathways. You know? mm -hmm. And the old pathways are still, they're very myelinated, right? They, they're firing very quickly. They're very strong. But we know today neuroplasticity, we can break those things down and build new pathways. But you got to go from that struggle phase to the eventual, we find some grace. And eventually we get to a place where it becomes an unconscious competence where it's just like automatic. Right. And so that is possible for all this stuff. There are people out there who are just like, if they don't work out, they don't feel right. Not that they feel bad about themselves or anything like that, but they crave it. Yeah. Right. It's like a positive craving that for some people are like, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I just saw my friend Mark Bell and he's Bell's Power Project. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark was a world champion weightlifter. Yeah. He squatted over a thousand pounds. At once. Why? <laughs> wow. Right? I mean, to do that, those, those knees, man. I'm just like. That part, you know, just him doing that, he was massive. You massive. know, he was carrying solid 300 ish pounds. And now he's lost a significant amount of weight, of but course. he's still a really big guy. Yeah. But he just ran the Boston Marathon. Wow. What? What? How much does he weigh? 215 what? or 220? I would say, I would say. 220. Wow, I would say that. of muscle. That's so heavy. Yeah, he's a meaty guy. He looks like an action figure. Whoa. But even when I went to see him, when he got there, he just came from running a few miles because he couldn't get his full eight in or whatever yeah, right. it is. And he said it to me, which is what I was feeling like, why are you doing this? And he was saying basically like, I would hear people say that they love running or they like were addicted to it. And I would think that they were crazy. And he's like, now nah, here I am. Stop. And so again, it's the brain. Yeah being able to like relate certain data pieces to a certain behavior. Yeah. Okay, so now, so that's defining culture, all right? We pass this on, but we get to craft and create the culture we want. With that being said, for me, I was looking at what has been a cultural implement that we might be missing out on that was protecting our health. Mm -hmm. Looking at the state of our health now and looking at the data on eating together. And I was like, Humans have been eating together forever. In a tribal construct, everybody was involved in food. So the hunting, the gathering, the food preparation, people ate together, celebrated together. This is when story and celebration, we see these things in other cultures and movies and stuff like that, or like a luau, like a dramatization <laughs> of the thing. But that's actually how life, how we evolved was with that. We might snack, have some little stuff here and there, but we're eating together as a tribe. Because the tribe is responsible for the tribe. There are cultures today still on our planet that are hunter-gatherers. And part of their subconscious belief in their culture is that if I don't move, I will die. In order for me to eat, I have to move. I have to engage with the world. In our culture, movement is optional. Mm -hmm. right? And so my question was, with that being a part of humanity... When that's pulled away, could that be? Could we be missing out on an invisible protective field for our families? And so, one thing that jumped out was I came across a study, and I again 
this is shared in the book as well, finding that when we eat in isolation, which today we went from thousands and thousands yeah. of years of eating together and being with our family to now eating predominantly alone with a device. Yeah. Right? And not again, not to villainize that, that's cool. I've been known to like pop on. Yeah, a little uh, YouTube. I just watched Kevin Hart's special yeah. on the Peacock, yeah. you know, which is pretty good special. When I was eating lunch a couple of days yeah. this past week. But I know now because of my personal experience and also the science, I am going to make sure that I'm eating with my family and getting these times together yeah. as well because the dinner table really acts as a unifier. It's so transformative for our our psychology, for yeah. our brain. And let me explain this. So one of the things like, why does this matter so much? One aspect is the influence that it has on our nervous system. So Because we, we regulate our nervous system together, right? Especially women. Yeah. Especially so yeah. women. Oh my God, totally. Women are really great. And dysregulate with, together. <laughs> that part. We be regulating up and down and all over the place. Women are really good with oxytocin yes. production when being with people that they love. And we're robbing ourselves when we don't have that. And oxytocin is one of the few hormones that we've discovered that have the ability to kind of counteract cortisol, right? Not Let alone the bigger picture change from this kind of sympathetic fight or flight. It's called fight or flight. We get the switch over when we're around people that we love to the parasympathetic, quote, rest and digest system around food. Isn't that going to be helpful? Which is the opposite of when you're on your phone, you're not in that state. You're not in rest and digest. So you may think that because you're alone, you would be. But if you're active on your phone or with a device, then you're not in that state, correct? Absolutely. There's a difference between kind of being mindless and checking out yeah. for a time and actual restoration. Yeah, totally. All right. There's a big difference between that. And for restoration, even the most introverted among us, you know, a lot of us do recharge on our own, absolutely, but we still require human interaction. Yeah. Our genes expect us to interact with other people, especially, again, people that we feel safe around. Now, this brings up the conversation of safety, yeah, right? And actually having an environment where that's the case. yeah. Because some people, we might have programming from our past where even with a family meal, there's a lot of volatility. So I... I took into action to address that, mm. but really subtly in the book. Cool. Right? Which is like, you get to create the culture that you want. We have to take responsibility though, which it can be challenging because if we have multiple kids, especially they have different personalities and somebody's going to be acting up. Mm. And so I found some science-backed ways that I've also tested and also tested with other families that help to get people connected faster. Wow. What is right? it? At the dinner table. There's so many different ways. Share right. some ways. So, I love this. I looked at something historical and just like, why do people pray before they eat? Like, mm. Why has that been a thing for so long? And what that is, it's a moment of presence. I love prayer. And being able to just be still, be present in the moment, and it's initiating that switch over from that sympathetic to the parasympathetic, just to be still for a moment. We tend to just close our eyes and we get here. Mm -hmm. I looked at some of the data on prayer and on gratitude. And gratitude, there's so much research on this now in its ability to really help to reduce stress and help to switch over from that yeah. fight or flight to 
the parasympathetic. And so one of the practices is sitting down with your family that we've been doing this for a long time, yeah. by the way. We, we've tried different things, but we'll just all go around the table and share. Oh, and the fam. Yeah, Aww. and share th- three things that we're grateful for before we yeah. eat, eat together. And it can be small stuff yeah. and sometimes it's bigger things, but it's just like you get to start to hear what's mm-hmm. going on, the, the state that they're in. Sometimes one of my kids might be something so like blunt or whatever, just like, I'm grateful. But sometimes, most of the time, by the way, because we have the culture, yeah. even if they're just saying I'm grateful for this, they mean it. But it could be like maybe they didn't have that great of a day. But it gets their brain searching for things. And also you can see their mannerisms. Like, oh, maybe there is something here, right? Hold a space for it, not to like, you better, you know, mm-hmm. which we can do that. You better be grateful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, oh, like this is, let's, let's, yeah, let's get this exposed. Let's, let's bring tend, this out because this. that's where bigger problems come down the road is like, we don't identify a thing earlier. When there is a disruption in our family culture and our connection, maybe something is going on and the dinner table acts as a unifier. It acts as a unifier for all of us, for our family, for our friends. And by the way, friends are included in this as well. And that's one big part of this is the psychology. You get to see the people in your life and they get to feel seen. You get to feel seen, right? And... If we're robbing ourselves of this, we're robbing ourselves of something that our genes deeply expect us to do, right? And so again, that minimum effective dose mm-hmm. is three meals, could be any meals, right? So right now in a busy season, for example, we might do family dinner on Monday, Wednesday, then brunch on a Sunday, right? But we make it a mandate to get those three meals in. And I started this story earlier, but I'm going to finish with this. Growing up in an environment, in a low-income situation, I was like, well, what about if you don't have good food? What if you don't have access to that? Could this still be beneficial for children and for families, for adults as well? And there was a study that was done on minority children, generally in the construct of a low-income environment. And they found that those children that ate together with their families four meals out of the week, they ate five servings of fruits and vegetables five days out of the week. And significantly less processed foods, ultra-processed foods, chips and soda and things like that. Particularly, the, the, the researchers noted when the TV was never or rarely on during the mealtime. Wow. So that shines a, a, a really bright light for me. Growing up in those conditions, had we known, had my mother known to just sit sitting down with us from time to time could have helped to protect our health, she would have done it. She just didn't know. And this is not speaking to food quality, by the way. There's another leverage point here with this is when we know we're going to have family dinner on Sunday, it tends to evoke some planning, right? Which because of life, a lot of times we just get, we don't know what the thing is. And so it gets into the, the day and DoorDash is right there. But DoorDash is awesome, by the way. Okay. Just about a week and a half ago, my wife, I don't know if she was getting her nails done. So, something happened where it ended up taking longer than she thought. She thought she was going to make dinner. And we, I planned on it as well. So, we, but she didn't end up being there, and we was like getting late. So I just door dashed something. But me and my two boys sat down and still ate together, even though it was something we ordered. Right? We don't have to throw everything out the window. And we had a great time just hanging out and connecting. And so those are some of the front end things that I shared. But on the back end, what if we can tie in a reward? Right? So this could be some kind of an act. 
Or this could be a, in, in, through the lens of food as well, which food, whether you like it or not, does function as a reward for the way that we're wired up. We have evolved enjoying tasty things. That's what drives us to eat certain things. It's not something to villainize. Yes, food manufacturers, food scientists have manipulated that, but we can take back control of that. And so even asking my youngest son, for example, he wants to, he's gaming with his friends and then it's like, oh, it's, it's time to shut it down, dinner time. But like, do you want these Snicker mm-hmm. bites? This is, by the way, this is in the cookbook. All right. This is not Healthy from Snicker. Healthy Snicker bites? Yeah. 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 Say no more. Or do you want whatever, fill in the yeah. blank, these uh, cherry frozen yogurt pops mm. that we make for after dinner? Yeah. So it can be that part. And also it is inviting him into the process. Yeah. Giving them empowerment through choice. It's exactly. huge with kids. So huge. Huge. But we like, again, we get frustrated telling them yeah. this. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then we can do this through actions as well, because we, by the way, we, we've got to admit this, this is all this talk. We, we have to be honest about where we are. Mm-hmm. We're addicted to our devices. Yeah. That was my whole thing with all of this. I'm like, also to children's addiction to food probably correlates to their addiction to dopamine because it's like now they're craving certain foods because of their dopamine addiction to their phone. So they don't have dopamine if they are off their phone and then they want it from their foods and just the way that we're looking at this device for connection, but really missing out on the actual, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So that part of it, we oftentimes, unfortunately, if we find out some of the science, we try to go cold turkey. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily work for most people. So the solution as with many things is with the habit change, you have to replace it with something because that you're going to create a a, a hole. You're going to create a void. A, a void. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get filled with something. Yeah, true. And so replace it with something of equal or greater value. Mm-hmm. And so we need to create an experience here. Again, this doesn't have to be anything too fancy, but just so that they feel that this was a valuable experience. And so we just had dinner, was it yesterday? No, the day before yesterday was my oldest son's birthday, actually. And after dinner, we ended up, everybody's freestyling, just everybody's just going around, except my wife, you know, yeah, she'll just kind of chime in yeah, and be yeah. a hype man kind of thing. But my sons and I was just going around, you know, it's like, these are the kind of things and you just see the creativity yeah. that's getting fostered and the fun. Yeah. Maybe it's like my youngest son wanted to be the DJ and pulling up the next track, whatever it is, you know, like, and so we create these experiences that you don't get when you're doing something that's shooting the, the information at you. You're in a creative state, you know? And so, and again, this could be, there's so many different ways of game night or, you know, there's these little cards out there with these different questions that can go around and everybody shares. There's different ways, but you got to create a new neural association to this process. Understand that you're powerful to be able to do this and give yourself some grace. Because if you're dealing with a situation where you haven't had this as a normal part of your life and, you know, your kids, yourself, maybe you're addicted to whatever you were doing before. We're just going to add in a little bit and be able to weather whatever turbulence and find some joy, find some rewards. And I'm telling you now, here's, this is the icing on the cake, literally doing this with delicious food. That's really the game changer Yeah. because nothing impacts us more deeply than food when it comes to like, it's a love, it's the, all, the five love languages in one. So true. And physical touch, even that part, nothing touches you like food does. You're taking something from out there and making it a part of your body. That is a big deal and it is powerful. And so even with acts of service, 
words of affirmation. Mm -hmm. You know, when you tell somebody that their love language is cooking food, how good their food is, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, what that does for them, filling up their cup. So it's huge. I mean, I'm the book is stunning and there's so much. And I'm just so grateful that we're at this nexus as a culture, as a society to kind of focus on the home. Because when you're talking, I'm like, we must protect our children. <laughs> we must protect our families. There's just so much that kids are exposed to, that kids go through that, yeah, that we really have the power to change and shift. And there's no one that deserves a healthy, loving environment more than our children. And also for us, like our own inner children have that too. And I was thinking about the women of our community because a lot of them are transitioning into motherhood or family. So they maybe don't have that yet, but maybe they're living in a big city and creating that type of experience with their friends, like with their chosen family, their chosen people can still have that positive association. You can still kind of recreate the environment that maybe you wish you would have had from a young age with your food. But the book is so beautiful. I love how much research you have in it. We love the emoji element. I feel like everything's like super well-backed. It's like the recipes look so bomb. So I'm excited for everyone to get this. Whether you have a family right now or not, it's like it is such an incredible book. Thank you. I mean, that means everything. Mm -hmm. This is it's one of those things where I feel like life qualified me to do yes, this right now at this time. It's the best feeling in the whole world. And so my mission right now and really bringing so many other incredible people into this mission, yeah. which is my mission is family wellness. Yeah. Really creating a superpower, like your own like Avengers team so that you're immune to the stuff happening out here. Yeah. And also with even with that culture piece, where you go, what I found, I actually, when I said the luau, because I just went to Hawaii actually for the first time. And I realized when I go into someone else's culture, I bring my culture with me. Yes, I can be influenced by that culture, but my, our family culture was an influence when we were there and people were coming up to us and talking to us, just like what would seem to be random for a lot of people, but we, this happens to us all the time. And for a while, I kind of didn't think much of it. And then I started to think, well, maybe, you know, like my, like my son's, the, the, how everybody looks fit or whatever, but it's not that. Mm. It's our connection. Yeah, totally. People can feel it. Yeah. They can feel your energy, your love, your synchronicity, and they just get curious. And that's like, that's the whole thing is like, that's how you impact people. Yes. I think people think about what am I going to say? What am I going to look like? What am I going to post? What am I going to do all these things? It's like the energy frequency that you're getting off is like speaking so much louder than anything else and really making the biggest impact. So I think that's so beautiful. And your family in the photos is so beautiful. Like, yeah. It's so good to see. So I'm really grateful that you did it because I feel like we really needed it. And I know that there's a lot of books you could have written in our health and wellness space. And this just feels like such a good one. And I want the Snickers bars. <laughs> I'm going to be making Snickers bars right now. Thank you so much, Sean. You can get the Eat Smarter Cookbook at eatsmartercookbook.com. And again, the author is Sean Stevenson. He's been on the show before. So search Sean Almost 30 to listen to the first one. It's super powerful. And thank you for supporting the show that we do this every single week multiple times a week for you for free. And if you want to support the show in a really easy way, you can do that by submitting a review, writing an amazing five-star review, just sharing your love means the world to Lindsay and I and just keeps us going. And thank you to the sponsors for this episode, just bringing you brands that we've vetted for you and really truly love and use ourselves. So you can find all discount information in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. All right, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.